Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to please turn with me to the New Testament book of Titus. The New Testament book of Titus. Uh, we're going to beginning, uh, begin a short sermon a series over the next four weeks in the book of Titus. Now, Titus, if you don't know or you've never read it or, or don't know much about it, uh, it is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to Titus, who was a church planter uh, in uh, the, the location of Crete. Now, incidentally, um, the book of Titus is the only book in the Bible uh, that's written specifically to a church planter. Now, for those of you uh, who are uh, Bible scholars in here, uh, you might say, well, what about Timothy? Uh, Timothy was a young man who planted churches. That's true. But Timothy really worked more amongst established churches. Titus, however, uh, he was on what we would call the front lines of hell in ministry. This was Titus. Crete was a designated assignment for Titus, and it stood as one of the most morally challenging locations in the ancient world, Uh, a kind of Mediterranean counterpart to Las Vegas. This was Crete, Uh, but there was an added twist, right? It, It was an island, and it served as a notorious hub for piracy in Jesus's day and age. It was reminiscent to maybe a first century Tortuga. So I want you to picture with me for just a moment the task before Titus. He's to cultivate and nurture a church community amongst the population akin to the characters of the Pirates of the Caribbean. That, that would have been his task, Titus's task. And the challenges that Titus faced were not merely theological challenges. They extended to navigating the very treacherous waters of immorality and lawlessness, That was his um, challenge before him. And so as we journey these next couple of weeks through the book of Titus, I would like for us to really peer into the dynamic landscape into into which the seeds of faith were truly sown in this day and age. And I want us to then consider something. I I want us to consider the relevance of Titus's mission to our own endeavors today. Our own endeavors today amongst turbulent spiritual seas. And so with that being said, I want to give you a little bit of a history uh, to the, the area of Crete. Historians say that the people of Crete constantly were in a state of drunkenness. The people of Crete were drunk all times. Uh, lying in Crete was a celebrated art form. In fact, the, the Greek word Crete was a slang term for uh, to lie. To Crete was to lie. Uh, the historian Polybius said that nowhere in the ancient world were politicians more corrupt with policies tilted towards the people in power than they were in Crete. Even Paul in, in, in Titus says that one of their own prophets has said that Cretans are liars and evil brutes and lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. This is what Paul and a prophet in that area has said about these people. Now some of you are like liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. That sounds like you're describing my workplace. Or maybe you're in here and you just have gotten back from the holidays and you say, that describes my family. The evil brutes, the lazy gluttons, and the liars. Now Titus emerges, 
He emerges as a beacon of relevance in our spiritual journey. Because he's navigating the challenges of an immoral place, which really begs the question, how do you and I embody? How do we express our faith in the face of overwhelming difficulty? How do we do that? How do you and I respond when Christianity is often met with disdain and belittlement? You know, our society where many find the message of Christ irrelevant or worse, they dismiss it as foolishness. Titus really serves as a guide and Paul writes to Titus to answer these questions. How do we live a Christian life in the face of difficulty? And Paul's one concern in this book is specified in the very first verse of the very first chapter. So I want you to look there now with me. Because he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Now, please don't miss this, which accords with godliness. That, that very phrase in verse number one, the truth which accords with godliness, or at least that theme is going to come up over and over and over again in these few short chapters. I mean, God's very purpose in the gospel is to create for himself a God-loving and a God-like people. And all of God's people said, that's the purpose of the gospel. That's what godliness means to be God-loving and God-like. And so what, what we see is the very point of the gospel. And so for those of you who have been Christians uh, for long periods of time, maybe you're a new Christian, I want to tell you something. When God saved us, he saved us for himself. That's why he saved us. He saved us for himself. Now, um, how many of you are uh, moviegoers? You like to go and watch movies. Um, I know Hollywood hasn't really put out anything worth watching as of late, but uh, one of the things that um, Bree and I, uh, my wife and I used to do, was uh, we used to attend uh, plays and musicals, like stage plays. That was our go-to thing uh, when we were dating and into marriage. Now, occasionally a movie would come out and we would want to see, uh, see that movie. And about 10 years ago, there was a movie that was released that was a depiction of the account of Moses, and it was the movie called Exodus, Gods and Kings. Do you guys remember hearing about that movie, or maybe you saw that movie? I know 10 years ago is a long time to think back about a movie. All right, Exodus, Gods and Kings. Now, it, it starred at that time one of my favorite actors, Christian Bale. Christian Bale was playing the Moses character in the film. Now, I don't want to hate on the movie, and if you've never seen it, um, spoiler alert this morning. The movie itself was a really good movie. Uh, it was put together very well. The graphics were phenomenal. But it took so many liberties in the account of Moses that I almost couldn't watch it from a biblical perspective. For example, in the movie, Moses is portrayed as this gladiator type warrior who does hand-to-hand -hand combat with, uh, with Pharaoh as the Red Sea is crashing all over time. Like, that's how the movie portrays Moses. Now, that wasn't my biggest disappointment in the movie. 
My biggest disappointment was that it left out the main phrase that Moses is famous for. The phrase, let my people go. Now, even the more traditional, biblically faithful treatments that have been made into movies of the life of Moses typically leave out the most important part of that statement. Let my people go, as, as is recorded for us by Moses. But that's not all he said. If we go back to the book of Exodus, we see that Moses truly said on behalf of God, let my people go so that they might worship me. That's what he truly said. Let my people go so that they might worship me. And that second phrase, so that they might worship me, was so much more essential than the let my people go part. I mean, God saved you and I to something more important than anything that we have physically here on this earth. You know, Christians talk a lot about what God has saved us from, right? Sex, drugs, rock and roll, God saved us from all these, but we often fail to talk much about what he saved us to. What did he save us to? And the point was not saving us from something, but to something. So therefore, one of the ways to authenticate true religion versus false religion, Paul says, is how it cultivates godliness in our lives. Truth that accords with godliness. Truth inside of us. False religion keeps us busy. False religion says you must externally conform. Mind you, godliness is inside the heart. And there's a huge difference, church. Huge. You know, there are a lot of false teachers that we see in the Bible, especially in Crete, where Titus is at. And, and I hate to even have to say this, but there are a lot of false teachers today, too. A lot. And Paul says that the true gospel that we find in the word of God, that creates godliness inside your heart. False religion just makes you busy. False religion just fills up your schedule with things to do. False religion says, learn this, do this, don't drink this, use these words, don't use these words. And so what I want to do and, and what I hope to do today is to show you why the gospel produces godliness. Why it produces godliness in such a way that nothing else truly can. Why every other religious approach doesn't work. And then at the end, I'm going to ask you to, to ask yourself some really hard evaluation questions about your own faith. Because incidentally, for those of you who made New Year's resolutions seven days ago, you're going to find out in the book of Titus why those resolutions oftentimes don't work. And so I, I want to get started. Um, I want to get started by asking a question, and then we're going to read a little bit. And the question I want to ask you is, how truly, how does the gospel produce godliness? And Paul unpacks for us the answer to that question. So I want you now to turn with me to, to Titus chapter 2. So probably just flip a single page or maybe it's on the, the page opposite of where you're at. Paul tells us the answer. So I'm going to read in verse number 11. 
And it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Verse 13, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God, and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. Paul told us in these few verses what produces these things. If I were to ask you right now, how How in this life can you become more self-controlled? How in this life can you become more upright or more godly? What would your answer be? Would it just be greater willpower? Would it be more biblical knowledge? Would it be having a more long-term accountability partner? Would it be just reading more of the Bible? Would it be maybe if I thought about judgment and it was more real to us? Maybe if I thought about hell more, would that make you more upright? None of those things are bad things to do. It's not a bad thing to have an accountability partner. In fact, you should have one. It's not a bad thing to read more of your Bible or to have more biblical knowledge. It's not a bad thing to think about the judgment that we see in Scripture. But Paul's answer was something different. He said in verse 11, the grace of God. The grace of God. It is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It is the the grace of God that teaches us to say no to our worldly passions and to live a self-controlled life. Why? Why? Because the grace of God points us to three different things that we see in Scripture. And they're not going to hit the screen for you, so I'm sorry for your note takers. But do you know and realize that as you read through the Bible, you find that the grace of God will point us upward to the glorious God who gave himself for us and he's coming back for us. That's what the grace of God does. It points us to God himself. But it also points us back to the very work of Jesus Christ and the price that he paid on the cross. That's what the grace of God does. It points us upward to himself and it points us back to the work that he did. But it also points us forward into what he is making us and what he has planned for us in the future. And so this upward and backward and and forward vision of the gospel produces godliness in us. Which then leads to another question, why? Why does that, or why should that produce godliness in us? And that leads me to say that today I'm going to tell you three actions that the gospel does in our life. And how and why it produces godliness. And the first action I want you you note takers to write down is that the gospel redirects our worship. The gospel redirects our worship. Now, I'm going to say something that I, I hope that uh, you understand uh, for any of, any of you who have been in church any length of time. Sin problems start as worship problems. Amen, church? Wow. Amen, church? Sin problems start as worship problems. Amen? Now, the original sin 
Paul tells us or describes for us what happened with the original sin. And he explains to us why you and I continue to sin. So I'm going to ask you to do something that I don't typically or normally ask you uh, to do. I'm going to ask you to please hold your place in Titus. And I want you to flip over with with me to one of my favorite books of the Bible, uh, Romans. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 1 for just a few moments. But I want to read to you what Paul describes for us as, as to why the original sin happened and in the garden and why you and I continue to sin. All right, I want to pick up for you in, let's, we'll just read in verse number 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Don't miss this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the first, here's a reason. Paul says, they exchanged in verse 23, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And what happens in verse 24? Because they did this, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. We're going to stop right there. Paul said that they, they gave up the glory of God and they placed it into created things. That was how the original sin started. And the word glory in the Hebrew is the word kabad. And it means weight or importance. Meaning that, that people give the weight that we are supposed to give to God in our lives to something in creation. Do you know the New Testament word or, or the Greek word for glory means beautiful or beauty? And if you put the two of those together, you have a really good definition that we gave importance and beauty to things more than we gave them to God. That's what Paul said. We gave importance and beauty to stuff that God created more than we did to God himself. I can't be happy without money. I can't be happy without a spouse or without respect. Or I can't be happy without sexual pleasure or, or, or comforts. And all of those things, church, they're good. It's good to have a spouse. It's good to have kids. It's good to be in a sexually committed relationship in your marriage. Those are good things that God gave to us. But Paul says that we end up giving them weight of importance that was reserved for God alone. How many of you in here know uh, the worship leader and author by the name of Matt Papa? Anybody? Matt Papa? A couple of you are nodding. Matt Papa wrote a book called Look in Lives, and he said that sin is simply worship that's been misdirected. 
And we never begin to worship, he says. We are born worshipers. It's like breathing. We just aim it somewhere. You know, some of the things that we deem most essential to life and happiness, we then arrange our lives to possess those things. And, and, and that list ends up becoming in a higher place and more important than God himself. And when we do that, we have walked into a position of sinfulness. We, we've dishonored and disrespected and offended a holy God because we've placed importance on his creation more than we have him. And so I want to say this to you, Christian, to change sin at the heart level, which is where God wants to change it, we have to change what we worship. We have to change what we worship. And until Christian Stop writing. Don't look at your phone. I want you to look up here for just a moment. To change sin at the heart level, you have to change what you worship. And until that changing of what you worship happens, all change in your life is superficial. All change in your life is will be superficial. It will last for a short period of time and you will walk right back in to the old lifestyle that you once had. And that's what we call behavior modification. I look like I'm doing the right thing, but it won't last because it's not spirit-led or spirit-filled. We're like the spouse. In our sinfulness, we are like the spouse who will dutifully serve our husbands or our wives while we are secretly wishing that we're with somebody else. Paul Tripp, uh, one of my counseling instructors, pastor, author, he told us my second year of counseling training that we worship our way into sin and so we have to worship our way out of it. We worship our way into sin and so we have to worship our way out of it. And I'm here to tell you that the gospel alone does that. The gospel alone is what redirects our worship. The gospel alone is what reignites our worship. Why? Because it shows us a God that is better and more glorious than any idol that we could ever have. If we go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Moses recorded something for us and then Jesus re-spoke it in the New Testament. And it's a portion of scripture that we have become so uh, over-familiarized with. Moses said to us that we are to love the Lord your God. You guys know that one, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, yes, Matthew 22, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? We recognize the verse. We've often, we've often taken that verse and misunderstood it. We, we end up hearing that verse or we, we throw it out and, and embrace the perspective from the hit Beatles song from 1967, all you need is love. Our culture 
has taken that verse, the set of verses, and twisted and tainted a portion of Scripture that is and was sacred. It was so sacred to the Israelites that they would pray through those Scriptures twice every day. In fact, those who are still devout to uh, Judaism still pray the Shema every morning and every single night like clockwork. And I'm telling you this morning that if you study history, you will soon realize that the Shema was so sacred to the Israelites in the Old Testament and still now to those who follow uh, Judaism that they would cover their eyes before they pray. They would close their eyes but then cover them with their right hand as to not be distracted by anything that could be in view in front of them. So that they would focus on the truth that there was something more in this life than what was physically there that they could see with their own eyes. And they did so for more than just that. They hoped and they wanted a reality that was centered on godliness. That when they uncovered their eyes, when their eyes were unveiled, that everything would be perceived from a position of godliness. And that's really how it should be for believing and professing Christians. We should have an attitude in our heart that reveres the things of God, that we don't want to be distracted by the world around us, and that when we open our eyes from spending time alone with God, our reality should be, God, I want to serve you and be like you and represent you in every aspect and form in my life. Some of you in here might be surprised to know that the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, which is often taught and viewed as strict adherence to the law. If you truly go back and study the Old Testament, the Old Testament truly recognizes that there is a spiritual relationship with God and that it begins inside of you. That it begins right here. And it begins with a proper disposition towards a preeminent Savior. Solomon told us in Proverbs chapter 4 that from the heart flow the springs of life. So without one's will and without your desires and your passions and your affections and your perceptions and your thoughts, without those rightly aligned, the life of love is completely impossible. Completely impossible. Therefore, Moses looks to the people and he calls them to know in their heart of hearts that God disciplines like a father to his son. And to know that, that God's people are to lay it to heart that there is no other God except for Yahweh. And that we were to ensure that God's words would be on, written upon our heart. That we would speak them when we're rising and when we're sleeping. And, and we, would, we would tell our children those things. And when we are eating and when we are walking, that they would be upon our lips. Meaning in every aspect, in every facet of life, that the word of God would be uh, overwhelming in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives. So that 
there was a miraculous heart work that took place. Moses was anticipating what the new covenant was going to bring. And so along with loving God with all of our hearts, Moses also said that we were called to love God with our soul. And if you read the first five books of the Old Testament, the word soul refers to one's whole being as a living person. And that includes the heart, but it was so much more than just the heart. And so when you read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, books that are often skipped over because they talk about so many things that we can't grasp or understand, you quickly see that Moses started with a call to love God from within. And then he moved to this really large step saying that everything about us as a person is to declare God as Lord. Everything. So we're to love God with our passions. We're to love God with our hungers and our our perceptions and and our thoughts. But we're also to love him with how we talk. And we're we're to love him with how we work with our hands and how we utilize our talents and how we react to challenges. I mean, our entire being is to display that we love God. And, and, and what then, church, is the meaning of loving God with our might? What then is it? Because that word translated might, or in some versions it's the word strength, is really not what you and I think it is. Interestingly enough, the, the Greek word translated uh, might means power. Our English word power. And the Aramaic word in in the Old Testament is wealth, is translated as the word wealth. Both of those really point in the same direction. Wealth and power for the strength or the, the might of a person is not simply who he is, but what he has at his disposal. That's what it is. What we have at our disposal. And that means that the call to love God is not only with our physical being, but with everything that we have available, we are to honor him. That means that if you have a husband or a wife, you're to honor God with your spouse. If you have children or grandchildren, you are to honor God with those children and grandchildren. If you have a home, you're to honor God with that home and with your clothes, and with your tools, and with your movie, and and with your music. The very covenant love that we are called to has to be wholehearted. It has to be. It has to be life-encompassing. It has to be community-impacting. And it has to be an exclusive commitment to God. Exclusive And that's really what the gospel does. It redirects our worship. Which leads me to say this, that the the second action that the gospel takes in our lives is that the gospel restores gratefulness. It restores gratefulness. Do you know in this passage in Romans, Paul identified for us a, a second component to the original sin. I want you to go back with me in Romans chapter 1 and reread verse 21. Paul said that for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor what? 
I'm sorry? Nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul said that the second component to sinfulness is thanklessness. It's thanklessness. I mean, how many of us walked into church this morning thinking of thanklessness as the core of sin? How many of you came in this morning thinking that, oh, well, I sin because I'm ungrateful? Not many of you, probably not many, if, if, not, if none of you at all, came in this morning. That why? Why would it be? Why did Paul say that? Well, think about it. When you and I are thankless, not only are we robbing someone of the glory that belongs to them, but we're convincing ourselves that we could have gotten along fine without them. That's what unthankfulness is or ungratefulness. I'm robbing you of your glory because I can be fine all by myself. I don't need you. And as Christians, when you and I are thankless towards God, not only do we rob God of the glory that belongs to him, but we're deluding ourselves into thinking that we are self-sufficient. We forget that every single breath that we have came from God. We forget that every single blessing on this earth was a gift that came directly from his hands. When our, our children were younger, specifically Israel and Esther, um, when they were younger, we used to have to tell them repeatedly that having a thankful spirit is not about being polite to someone. It's about giving life. It's about giving life. And we used to tell them over and over and over again. And at one point specifically, I remember using this analogy. And I told our kids that we are like the moon. The light shining out of our lives is reflected light. It's borrowed light from the sun. And if you remove the sun, we go dark. If you remove the sun, we go dark and that lack of gratefulness, that, that self-sufficiency, that leads to independence. And that independence leads to more sinfulness. That's all it does. And so how does the gospel transform us? Well, it points out our inability to save ourselves. That's what it does. It points it out. You and I at one point were hopeless, completely hopeless. And Jesus had to do everything on the cross. And we have to just receive that gift. And so the gospel redirects our worship and the gospel restores our gratefulness, but the gospel also raises expectations. It raises expectations. You know, in the gospel, we, we see what God is making us into and we see the future that he has for us. God puts inside of us a taste and a hunger for the future, for the end. How many of you in here know who John Piper is? Okay, many hands. John Piper spoke at a conference about 12 or 13 years ago. And while I was there, he said to the group, he said, sinlessness. I can almost taste it. I can almost taste it. Is that what you're excited about for all of eternity? And he said, because if... If it is, 
then you long for it and you move towards that right here and right now. You know, the Apostle John wrote to us in, in 1 John, and it's going to come to the screen, and he said that we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. These things, they deliver us from sin at the very heart level. You become a person that is eager and zealous, as, as Paul wrote, to do good works. But by contrast, Paul said that religion cannot do these things. Now, if you have your Bible, I want you to flip back to Titus for me. I want you to flip back to Titus, and we're going to go back to chapter number 1, because I want, to, I want us to see something here in Titus chapter 1. We're going to start in verse number 10. Paul said, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from nothing, sorry, turn away from the truth. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul goes after the false teachers that are at work in Crete. The Jewish heresy that he is talking about here, uh, of course, is particular to this context. People uh, here in Ionia um, are not teaching the exact same things that they were teaching in this book here. But Paul describes for us the characterization of all false religion. All false religion. It emphasizes adherence to, to rules rather than internal conformity. He said it's with mere words or empty words. He, he talked about Jewish rituals and, and commands. And he even said that the false teachers use God for the sake of dishonest gain. Meaning that they were trying to use God in order to collect money. I'm not going to name any names, but it's like the people that you see on TV that it's like if you give our ministry $1,000, we're going to send you this bottle of water and you're going to live for another 50 years. We chuckle, we laugh about it, but that's truly things that are going on right here in America. And we, Paul is saying, avoid, avoid these things. God cannot be used as a means to an end. He can't be. Religion leads to the opposite of godliness. The opposite. Instead of gratefulness, religion produces pride. Produces pride. Those who excel at religious things say, look at what I accomplished. I'm better than they are. If I were to ask you why you're going to heaven and you tell me anything about yourself, that's pride. Anything at all about you is pride. 
Or maybe you fall into the other ditch and you fail to live up to the standard and you fall into pride's evil cousin, despair. I'm terrible at this. I constantly fail. I'm always making mistakes. I'm never going to do it. Well, might as well just give up and enjoy the pornography. Might as well just give up and enjoy the alcohol. Might as well just give up and enjoy the, the, the cigarette or the marijuana. Why? Because they make me feel good for a temporary time. And instead of producing more godliness, pride and despair lead to more sinfulness. Instead of a full surrender, religion calls for partial commitment. Christian in here, if salvation is a negotiation, you do things and God lets you into heaven as a result, then there is a limit to what you have to give to God. There's a limit to that. But if he saved you when you literally had nothing at all, then it all belongs to him. All of it, every piece of it. And so instead of worshiping God and using things, you worship things and you use God. Instead of hating sin, you begin negotiating with your sin. Your concern with sin is to avoid punishment and that's it. And so you ask, how close can I get and still be okay? So then pastor, what is the opposite? What is the opposite of that? Because that sounds like an awful way to live life. And church, I'm here to tell you from my own personal story, that is an awful way to live life. It's empty and it's done in vain. I did that for years. And I can tell you that there is a way better way to live and that's the people who love God and hate sin. The book of Romans tells us that we are to abhor the things that are evil and against God. We are to abhor, meaning to hate from the depths deepest inside of us. We are to hate them. We should be not concerned about how close we can get to sin, but we hate sin so badly that we run from it. We get away, we flee, because after being transformed by the gospel, our sin becomes way more loathsome to us than the punishment that comes with it. And so Paul said, he said, religious people claim to know God, but by the shape of their heart, they deny him. They deny him. Even though their lives are religiously crazy busy, The shape of their heart, Paul said, it's detestable and it's disobedient and it's unfit for any good work. But the gospel changes that. The gospel changes that. The kindness of God, Paul said, leads us to repentance. Romans 2.4. And it leads us to repentance because it's redirected our worship and it's restored our gratefulness and it's raised the expectation. Charles Spurgeon, one of, uh, one of my favorite um, pastors to read a- after. I've read through his sermons and his, his um, journals and he says some of the most profound things. I want, I want you to see this quote that's going to come to the screen He said that when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. 
But when I found God so kind and so good and so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. And so Christian in here, non-Christian in here, person watching online, I want to say something to you from the bottom of my heart. Christianity is not turning over a new leaf. It is receiving the power to live and walk in a new life. That's what it is. Christianity is, is not a resolve to live a better life. It is having the resurrection to life in Christ inside of you. That's what Christianity is. And so I want to stand here this morning and tell you that you don't need a New Year's resolution. You need a new heart. You need a new heart. And that comes only by the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come by exhortations to do better. It came by a narration of events. A glorious appearing of, of the greatest Savior in the world who came to this earth and he took our punishment and he's coming back one day, church. He's coming back like our prince and he's coming back like our bridegroom and he's coming back as a mighty warrior to take us to be with him forever. And so when you and I look upward to him and backward to the cross that he was placed on and we look forward to where he's leading us into the future, we can live godly lives. Religion says to you that you shouldn't sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Religion says that you should read your Bible every day and not get drunk and witness to your friends and not lose your temper. None of those things are good news to someone who's struggling with those issues. It's not good news to them. It feels like condemnation to those people. But you know what the gospel says? The gospel says this, not you shouldn't. The gospel says you don't need to. The gospel says that you don't need to get drunk because Jesus offers you a far better refuge than alcohol. You don't need to lose your temper because God's in control of your situation. You don't need to give yourself to money. God is a better treasure than your money. You don't need to make yourself a slave to sexual pleasure because God is your fulfillment and he's your companion. You don't need to be controlled by the opinions of other people. Your heavenly father loves you. He loves you. And church, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's not just good advice, church. It's good news. And so in light of that, in light of everything that we said today, Paul urged us to evaluate the religious teachings that you have received. To make sure that the books that you read and, and the preachers that you watch on TV or listen to on your radio are speaking truth that aligns with the word of God. Not their truth, God's truth. But then Paul even takes it a step further. And he says, evaluate, Christian, your sincerity as a believer. 
Do you see evidence of God changing you? Do you see it? Does it feel like you were hit with a Mack truck every time you spent time with God? Please, please, please don't hear something I'm not saying. And be aware, I'm not talking about perfection in this life. I seem to be more aware of my sin and shortcoming more than ever because I've spent time with God and that growth is deepening my love of grace and truth at every turn. Do you see inside of you a greater desire to know God and to understand him and his word? And I hate to say this, but if this is not happening, then you've never really understood the gospel. Is the vision of this setting in your heart? Because Paul said that for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It's appeared to all men. And so I want to close by asking you this, has it appeared to you? Is it appearing to you more and more and more? Because instead of making New Year's resolutions about losing weight and getting into the gym five days a week, why are we not asking God to have the gospel appear to us more and more and more in 2024? Why? Why make a New Year's resolution that'll last for six weeks or less instead of focusing on heart change this year? So Christian, in here, 2024 is an opportunity for you to invest in a greater capacity in your relationship with the Lord and with the people around you. And non-Christian, 2024, right now, January 7th, 2024, 11.32, is an opportunity for you to call upon the Lord to save you right here, right now. You don't need to wait. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to look a certain way. I remember, I remember when I came to the Lord, I was a young child and I thought I knew everything about him. I quickly learned by the time I was a teenager that that wasn't true. And, and for all intents and purposes, you would have said, according to the Bible, I lived a life of debauchery for years, saying that I was a Christian and attending church. I was a leader in the church. And I remember the moment that the Holy Spirit pricked my heart so hard that I could not get away. And I remember how difficult it was to walk away from a lifestyle entrenched in pornography. I know how difficult that is. But I can tell you right here, right now, that God provides you the strength to walk away from the things that encapsulate and entrench you and entangle you in their chains. The Holy Spirit has the power to break those chains and and tear down the walls that keep you from, from growing.
but now is an opportunity for you. I can't force you. I wish I could. My wife and I talk about this all the time. I wish I could force people to love Jesus the way that I love him, but I can't. I can't force people to love Jesus. I just want you to know the Jesus that loves me. I just want you to know God is good if you give him an opportunity. God is good. You will see. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that your path is going to be like puppies and candy canes because it won't. But what I'm telling you is that there is something far greater at the end of this life. Far greater than any pain and any sorrow and any tear that falls from your eyes. There is a place of perfection where we will stand in the glory of God, our creator, our maker, and hopefully our savior. And so are you willing to follow him in 2024? Are you willing to follow? Let's pray. God, as we, as we close out this morning, we cannot help but be grateful for the wisdom and the guidance that is found in your word over and over and over again. We find it, Lord, and so we thank you, God. We thank you for the relevance of this book that we're diving into and, and the issues and pressing questions that it addresses. God, we ask, we ask with the sincerity of our faith this morning that we would recognize that true transformation can happen at the heart level. And I pray that your grace would be so evident in our lives that it would lead us to say no to ungodliness. That it would lead us to say no to our worldly desires and our passions. And then we would say yes to a life of self-control and uprightness and godliness. I pray, God, for a restoration of, of gratefulness inside of our hearts. That we would recognize that every gift comes from you. But Lord, I, I also ask that you would set our expectations on a glorious future. Because you have prepared a place for us. And our prayer is, is that the gospel would shape our desires so much so that it instills in us a, a zeal and a, a fervor for you and for good works as we anticipate the day that you return to us. And Lord, I know that we're already seven days into this new year, but as we continue on, God, I ask that you would deepen our understanding of the gospel that you would transform us from the inside out. Lord, we, we want your grace to continue to appear to us, but I pray that that grace that appears to us guides our steps. I pray that it molds us into a people who love and reflect you in every single aspect of our lives. And as we often like to pray asking you, God, that you would give us divine encounters with lost and hurting people that we might share that grace with them. The hope that is inside of us. In the, the precious and the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.